You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. What's it like to run the world's highest edible garden? Brent Pertel is head horticulturist at Capita Spring, a rooftop garden in Singapore which towers over the city at 280 metres. In this episode, he describes some of the challenges of not only growing food at a height that beneficial insects generally don't travel within, but also working with key stakeholders who lack a green thumb themselves. Brent's moving back to Melbourne, so you can check the show notes if you'd like to hire him. So welcome to the show, Brent. Yeah, thank you very much. So look, today I'd like to ask you a little bit about your career and particularly the job you're in right now. So can you tell us about your job in Singapore? Yeah, so I, uh, at the moment, I'm head gardener for an edible garden, which is on top of a skyscraper in Singapore. So 280 metres up off ground level, it's actually the world's highest, which makes it quite unique for, for many reasons. And as well as that role, which takes up most of my time, I also run the operations team at Edible Garden City, which is a company in Singapore, a social enterprise that grows or designs, builds, and maintains edible gardens throughout the uh, throughout the city. Um, talking about 300 gardens to date, uh, that kind of a level. So we, we build those gardens for the commercial sector, um, such as the one that I'm the head gardener for. So that's a farm-to-table concept, so we grow it for three restaurants that are in the same skyscraper. We also design and build gardens, edible gardens for schools, and that's a big part of what we do, and then the company that does uh, education programs for the teachers, so the teachers can then teach the students. And occasionally, we've also done the the old private project as well. So very much, uh, very much part of the edible gardening scene. Very much. So can you tell me a little bit about um, the garden, the, the restaurant garden that you're a part of? Tell me about the company. Tell me about what you're doing there and what you're growing. Yeah. So the garden, so the actual skyscraper um, is a landmark in Singapore. It's the uh, second highest building. There's about four buildings that are all the same height uh, because we're quirk of Singapore planning where the maximum height is 280 metres, so there's several buildings of the same height, but they all share the second highest category. Uh, 51 floors, and with and, and the building was designed by an Italian architect and opened in January of last year, after about a two-year construction process. Uh, within the tower, there were three restaurants that were planned, and at the design stage of the tower, the landholder and the architects put out to tender uh, the three restaurant spaces so which is quite common for these large projects so a singapore company called one group um, who are a restaurateur among other things they have many restaurants in singapore they took that they lease hold of those three restaurants uh, it was actually one group who came up with the concept of the edible garden on the roof so it wasn't something that was planned by the architects or the landholder, which is capital land, a big landholder in Singapore. Uh, one group wanted to do something unique uh, for their restaurants. Uh, Singapore is an incredibly competitive space within the restaurant business, uh, as is everywhere, but Singapore in particular. 
And so they're always looking for that kind of unique angle. And so they pitched the idea of the edible garden. So the edible garden is 10,000 square feet. Uh, that's including paths, 7,500 square feet of planting space. It's on the 51st floor, which is the roof. And then the produce from that garden goes to the three restaurants within the tower that fall under that one group company. Um, so quite unique in that way. As I said, it's the world's highest, um, which, which is very interesting. But it also is an interesting garden from a horticultural perspective because doing this type of native garden at that height has unique challenges that we were really only aware of after we built it. So it's become a bit of a case study and it's had a lot of interest in the world within horticultural circles about how these gardens work, uh, their limitations, et cetera, et cetera. So in terms of what we produce, um, we started off with 180 different varieties within the garden. Um, over time, we've cut that back. We're down to probably, probably about 120 varieties at the moment, maybe a bit less. Essentially, anything that the kitchen weren't using, we got rid of to maximize our space. Um, and of that 120 varieties, we produce approximately 80 kilograms per month that go to the three restaurants. Wow. So can you put it into context for us? Like, what does that look like in terms of bags of, of fruit and vegetable? Like, um, like how, how much fruit and vegetable could you, I mean, I know a bag is as long as this piece of string, but how yeah. much, can you paint a picture of us? How much food is that? Uh, if you think of a blue tub, like a blue box. Like um, a butcher bin. We, yeah, something like that. A blue tub, um, it would be 80 of those. So we generally use wow. the one box about one kilogram of, of leafy greens, etc. Uh, and we could do more than that if we wanted to. We could we could easily hit probably 100, but um, the 80 kilograms is actually what the restaurants are requesting. They don't, they don't want more than that. Okay. So it's also a unique garden in its layout. So when we talk about edible gardens, and this is interesting from an edible garden perspective, when we talk about these spaces, people often think of a, a market garden or a, a kind of traditional European Mm. market garden where everything's in nice and neat rows and you have your you know your beans in one row and your mustards in another row etc etc um that is if i was wanting to do it purely about production that's what i would do but this garden is it's very multifaceted um i often say it's a bit of a schizophrenic garden to be honest right it, that's my kind of garden <laughs> well <laughs> it needs to um it needs to have that production. It needs to hit that eighty kilograms a month, and and quite a wide wide variety that the chefs need. But at the same time, it needs to be highly ornamental because we have mm-hmm. a lot of VIPs, we have weddings, we have um, special garden tours, all these type of things going on all the time, and it's open to the public. So we have about two hundred people a day come through the garden. So the garden needs to look look great while also producing produce. So to do that, we use different techniques. So the, the main way I do it is that we I use mixed planting. So yeah. if you can think, if you're trying to visualize the garden, essentially don't think of a traditional market garden. Instead, think more of a mixed herbaceous border. 
you think of a mixed English invasion border, that's kind of more what it's going to look like. Yeah, let's get into those reasons. So why, yeah, why, why do you, you know, mix your plantings and instead of yeah. you know, planting a whole bunch of broccoli together? So there's various reasons. Uh, the first one is to help with the aesthetics, to make it uh, to make it as beautiful as you possibly can, to make it as inter- interesting as we possibly can. Uh, the second one is to help with pests. We have major pest problems in the garden. So by block planting particular varieties, um, something like uh, we have Celosia argentea, argentea uh, or feather coxcomb, as it's better known, that, that is something that is attacked constantly. If we grow that in large large blocks, it just helps the pests to find them and, and tear it apart. So we find breaking this up and having smaller patches throughout the garden does help. Uh, limited, but it does help with the pests. Uh, and then secondly, it's as strange as it sounds, it's to hide the fact that we're harvesting a lot of this stuff. Right. So what, what I mean by that is if I have <laughs> well if, if I have a patch, a big patch of radish, so we, we grow daikon radish, and if I have a big patch of daikon radish, uh, I grow that up and then I harvest the whole thing, I'm going to end up with a big empty space in the garden for a few weeks until I replant it all back up again, until I re-fertilize the soil and plant it back up. Now, this garden being the garden it is, I can't have a big empty patch just sitting there in the garden. Um, number one, I don't have enough space. Every every square inch is prime real estate. And secondly, it detracts from those visuals that we're always working on. So instead of having a patch of 100 radish, I'll break it up into 10 patches of 10 radish and put those throughout the garden. So on a daily basis, I can come in and harvest maybe one patch of 10 and it's not going to have that same visual impact. In, instead, it has the opposite effect because when you walk through the garden, you find these patches of interest throughout the garden, which is really mm. So it's a few reasons we do it. The visuals play a big part of it and also just just using every square inch is very important. Yeah, it's really important as well from the pest perspective. Uh, I want to touch on that pest problem that you said. You said you've got major pest issues. Can you tell us about what's going on and what you're doing to remediate it? And can you go into a bit more detail about why, um, you know, mixing up your plantings is a, is a good method? Yeah, an I mean, obviously we strategy. do use IPM. Um, that's an important part of it. And when I say major pest issue, I mean, everything's relative course we do have a serious pest issue um what we've discovered is that building an edible garden particularly a lot of plants in the amaranthia family uh, building that on top of a skyscraper which is lit up at night time is basically a giant dinner bell for every moth within <laughs> 500 kilometers <laughs> no doubt <laughs> yeah so we, we have major major Larvae, caterpillar problems, and moths. Uh, funny enough, we don't get butterflies. Butterflies are very rare to see in the garden uh, because we're just too high. But we do have a major moth problem. Um, in particular, the moth that's uh, causing all the damage and just gets named for us to get it is <laughs> Sporoptera frangipoda, which is uh, fall army worm. So uh, don't know if you're familiar with that one. 
Yeah, I've never had to deal with it myself, but I have heard farmers talking about it, and it's not a fun one. No, it is It is a major problem. So it was first discovered in Thailand in 2018, uh, originally from North America. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's having a fantastic time in Southeast Asia um, to the point where there's been several conferences region-wide on this one single pest, and it's starting to affect the, uh, the actual wholesale prices of rice, etc. Um, mm-hmm. Resistant to pesticides, um, the only thing that we found that really has any effect is uh, BT, Bacillus thuringiens. You know, always pronounce that wrong, but BT, um, pretty common spray that's used. Yeah, that's a bacteria, right? It is, and the other one is spinosad. So these are both uh, soil bacteria, um, which you spray onto the leaves, caterpillar, caterpillar ingests it, it helps us at a young age and hopefully controls the population that way. Unfortunately, we're starting to see some resistance to, to the BT, which is, a, which is another major problem. So growing a garden like this um, at height, as I said, has unique challenges. And having a gigantic dinner bell in the sky is, is certainly one of them. So as I said, we use BT, we use Spinosad. We try not to use Spinosad. It's really a last resort. Um, the latest research coming out on Spinosad is that it has a, a much bigger impact on other insect life, such as bees, than, than was initially thought. Mm-hmm. So we really try to limit our use to that until we have no other options. Uh, otherwise, we use BT. We also use uh, neem oil, but again, quite sparingly. So instead, our... Pest management approach um, is using the mixed planting. So, for example, we'll be using French marigolds, which the, the, the research is still out on this one, but traditionally it's been used as a pest deterrent. So we, we mix, and more importantly, the flower and the leaf is edible, so the chefs use them. So they'll use those throughout the garden and mix them in with the other planting to try to help. Um, Soil nematodes in particular that they're meant to help with. So the mixed planting is a key part. Um, the most important part really in terms of our IPM is just trying to get that natural balance established of insect life within the garden. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, this garden is unique because it is it is really a, a man-made man-made space, obviously, on, on the top of the building. But what that also means is that a lot of this insect life can't come into the net garden mm. naturally because we're so high up. Mm. Um, so, for example, uh, bird life would be very important in picking off all of those caterpillars and eating them. Uh, at ground level in Singapore, a common thing is to have wildfowl or chickens um, and use those to help regulate those caterpillars. But what we discovered with this garden is uh, we have no bird life up there, or very, very rarely, um, and simply because we're just too high for the ground shooting birds to, to come up that high. Mm-hmm. And while we do have bees, bees seem to be funny enough; they seem more than happy to come up that high. We do have a lack of a lot of other stuff, and really, the only way insect life can come into the garden is if it hitches a ride on plants that are brought into the garden. Right, and then usually not the goodies. Not not always, no, not always. But luckily, sometimes they are. But it, it really is a case; it's a lucky tip of what's going to make it yeah. up there. It's not. 
So do you do any releasing of your own uh, you know, biological controls? Yeah, absolutely. So the other issue you have in Singapore is that the organic gardening, organic farming, farming in general, but organic farming is, is very, very much in its infancy stage. It's mm. just not, not something you can see very much over here. You might see it at the individual hobby level, that commercial mm-hmm. level is, is largely unheard of. So what that means is that there's no demand for any of these inefficient insects to be produced. So I see. I can't I can't buy beneficial nematodes in Singapore. Um, mm-hmm. I can't buy beneficial insects in Singapore. The closest place I've found in the entire region is, is Australia. And getting those shipped over is obviously a major issue not really possible mm. the only thing we have found with phylobore worms so earthworms uh, funny enough there are a couple of guys who sell those in singapore so we we got those and released those in the garden and that, that's been a, a big help it's been a big boom mm. but getting our hands on any type of any type of commercial quantity of beneficial insects etc is, is pretty much impossible it's whatever you can either catch catch yourself or whatever hitches a ride up there. Yeah, that's rough. So you're looking for lady beetles all over the shop. Yeah, exactly right. So it's taken. we actually started to see our first uh, lady beetles about two months ago, which is fantastic. Um, and so essentially it's taken about a year. It's taken about one year from when the garden was completed, which was in uh, January of last year, before we started to see any meaningful amount of, of insect life which is, that's that's also been a challenge. We're we're slowly getting there. Unfortunately, the uh, the fall army worm, and we also have Hawaiian red worm. Um, uh, their numbers are exploding at the moment. They're going into hot weather, and so that those numbers are exploding. And so we're kind of back to square one in some regards. But um, we keep trying. That's horticulture, isn't it? Keep trying. <laughs> yeah, it's as I said, it's it's an interesting space um, mm. for many reasons. Obviously, the wildlife at that at that height is largely artificial, so that's interesting. But you're also dealing with man-made structures, so things like the drainage drainage of the garden is, is an issue as well. But it's not all bad news. Um, as I said, we're hitting that eighty kilograms a month. Chefs are in the garden every day. I'm harvesting for them every day. We have a, a great relationship. Uh, if anybody is thinking within the industry to do this type of work, um, I would strongly suggest to to reach out because it is surprisingly uh, there's a lot of pitfalls. Let, let me put it that way. Um, not only in terms of the environment and pests and all these type of things. Those things can be dealt with if, if you have a big gardener. That's no issue. And client expectations and the relationship with clients are absolutely crucial with these type of governments. And I, I can't emphasize that enough, really. And luckily, with uh, the chefs that I work with, we have a great relationship. And so if the army worm has had a fantastic weekend and wiped out a particular variety of plants, I can turn around and say to the chef, you know, look, I'm really sorry, but this has happened. This is what I'm doing to fix it. You'll need to give me you know, a few weeks, and and that'll be perfectly fine with that. And that that's what makes my job possible. Really, at the end of the day, is that relationship. 
Yeah. So what? how fussy are they in terms of like pest damage? Like if there's a couple of leaves in the leaf, will they still take it? Yeah, they will, um, which is, again, which is fantastic. So they will, a lot of these leaves, um, so Telenum fritillatum is, is a common one that they're using that gets chewed up by the armyworm. And so they'll just cut that damage out and cut the leaves into strips to use in a salad, yeah. for example. So they're happy to work around this. They're happy to work with me. They know my job's not the easiest. I know their job isn't the easiest. Crucially, they work together. For these edible gardens, I can't emphasize that enough how important that is. So it's not just about understanding the horticultural aspects and you know planning ahead and all that sort of stuff. It's also about being adaptable, thinking on your feet, and also planning ahead. Like once something happens then you need to formulate a new plan. It's not sticking with plan A all the time. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Um, it's developing that strong relationship with the client and always thinking on your feet. If you're in a, you know, I did ornamental gardens for a long time and you might have, you know, might have an opening coming up or you some type coming up and you need to prep the garden and make sure things are in bloom when that event starts. This garden is, is the same, but on an almost weekly basis. Yeah. So um, you're always thinking ahead, um, not just in projects of what, what to grow. So as I said, we have dark radish is one crop we grow. Um, we also have various mustards that we grow in, in crop varieties. So always funding and it's always rotating on. But at the same time, you also have in the back of your mind about the visual side of things. Because you may have. VIP, um, wedding coming up, you have a film crew coming up, and so you're always also having that second dimension. Mm. I just realised I forgot to ask you what you're actually growing there. You touched on the um, on the daikon radishes and, and a few others, but are you growing some Aussie natives there too? Uh, we are. So the three restaurants, um, the three restaurants. One is Mediterranean. One is Japanese and one is Coastal Australian. Um, they're all fine dining. Uh, so for the Coastal Australian, we have things like um, Lemon Motel, Bacalzia Citriodora, um, River Mints, uh, various native mint mints, etc. Um, we also have, actually I can give you an example here of a typical dish restaurant use. So for the Carla, the Australian restaurant is called Carla, K-A-A-R-L-A, Carla. And they have a signature closed-to-loop salad, which has become very popular. Uh, and that is the, the base. So the, the two leaves to make up the most of it is fain flour, which is um, piper cymentosum. And also feather coxcomb, which is Silosia argentia. And I apologize for butchering the lesson names on these ones. And then, in terms of accents, they then have wild pepper, which is piper cementosum, uh, roselle, roselle leaf, so hibiscus sabirisha, cranberry hibiscus leaf, which is hibiscus acetosella. Then they make a curd from argonauts. Uh, which is also called Earth Almonds, which is Sipiris esculentums, and then also Daikin Radish. So that all comes from the restaurants. That makes up a big part of that kind of 80 kilograms a month. 
and that gives you a little bit of idea of how we use it. Very cool. Look, you said for someone to contact you if they're thinking about doing this themselves or, you know, working for someone, what are some of those pitfalls that people commonly fall into or, you know, you can see like that you would fall into if you hadn't already experienced it before? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I was going to say, luckily I have a lot of experience. Well, I have some experience <laughs> in this in this field. Sometimes I wish I didn't. <laughs> right. Why is that? Why do you wish you didn't have experience? <laughs> well, I, you know, since being in Singapore, it's been four years that I've been in helping send me down the city during these gardens. Um, the biggest pitfall and the, and the most common by far and the one that makes you pull your hair out on a daily basis is client expectations. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people, particularly in a hyper-urban environment such as Singapore, where people have, you know, even though they have fantastic parks and gardens, a lot of people don't have hands-on experience of gardening in, in any shape or form. Mm-hmm. So particularly in Singapore, but this is a wider issue, um, client expectations are often very, very different. Mm. So, you know, clients will have an image of, okay, I want to grow an edible garden, um, whether it be a commercial premise or schools or wherever else. And you can, you can just see by the look of their face and their, their eyes, the look in their eyes that they're envisioning a kind of garden of Eden. Where they're going to, yep. <laughs> to walk out and pluck pluck fruit hanging down from the trees as they just skip merrily through the garden. <laughs> Which I wish I wish that was the truth, but the reality is obviously there's, there's a lot more hard work that goes into making that action So if you if you entertain those ideas, um, if you if you reinforce that image with the clients that. All they need to do is build a garden and the rest will take care of itself and it will be an abundant paradise. If you entertain those ideas or if you don't step in and, and just you know, nicely, not in a bad way, obviously, but mm. nicely try to educate them about the realities, these type of gardens and the pest issues and the fertility issues and everything else, then you are going to be so. It's as simple as that. I've actually seen a lot of people within the industry actually make the exact same mistake. Um, I've seen many people within the industry design these gardens or be involved in these gardens and, again, not really have a solid understanding about how these gardens work. Because often what people forget is that, number one, people's idea of what an edible garden is can be very different from person to person. But also what people want to get out of the garden can be very different from person to person. And you really need to zero down and find out exactly what that is. So to give you an example, Capus Broom, the garden of the garden is a, is a good example of this. So the garden was built and installed, opened in February, and we had a great gardener up there, uh, Chris Love, Chris Lowe, um, great guy who did a great job. But he he was very much um, far from noble form. So he was right. uh, growing lots of different things. Um, he was in the, he's actually a chef in his previous life. 
and the visual aesthetics were very much a secondary fault. Mm. Um, now, what happened with that was that the client, the, the chefs were happy, although there were some other issues as well, but the chefs were happy that the, the manager, the person who owns one group, wasn't happy because their, their reason to take for the garden was the, the produce, the restaurant, but also as this showpiece, a very important showpiece, which, you know, quite frankly, a lot of money for for their VIP events and their weddings and everything else. When I say VIPs, you know, for example, at the prime minister up there not, not very long ago. Mm. So the garden, um, if I'm honest, it wasn't in the best shape. Um, Produce-wise, it was doing okay, but it wasn't in the best shape visually. Mm. Uh, and then the client was kind of jumping up and down about that. And then I was actually brought in in August of last year. So the Australian Institute of Horticulture actually came up through tour in mid-August of last year, and I took over the garden a week later. Um, now, the difference of my approach, and, and again, it's not, not necessarily right or wrong about the approach, it's just what's right or wrong to the client. My approach is more form over function to a certain degree. So I can right. over function. Yeah, well, I come from an ornamental background. I um, mm. studied design in London. Um, my first passion is, is beautiful gardens. And so I managed to still hit the production, but put a lot more effort into the visual side of it. And all the sudden, the clients were happy. So again, what, it's a long story to, to talk about, but to go back to it, it's important to understand what a client wants out of this. Because just saying, well, it's an edible garden, therefore they must want as much produce as possible may not actually be true. But they really I produce. see. Mm, um, that makes a lot of sense. So there, there are tricky gardens to get rice. Um, I'll be honest, I've, I've seen many, many, many gardens, edible gardens, though, um, because client expectations are met, client, ex- client un- expectations are unmanaged or understood in the first place. Um, it's it's almost more important than the actual. Well, you can't do the design process without really understanding what the client wants. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So if there's someone who's paying for it, it's not really just about what you think is right. It actually is about what their like what their ideas are. I mean, it sounds obvious, but that's the truth. No, I mean it, it sounds very obvious, but unfortunately, it's one of these gardens. That's not really looked into properly or really understood. Mm. It's kind of like, well, it's an edible garden. You must want to, you know, as much produce, or you must want this as much as you want. But, you know, it's not never always the case. It depends on the So you've got to ask questions, and you've also got to be a nice negative Nelly. That is exactly right. You need to ask a lot of <laughs> questions. You need to get into people's head to understand what they're really thinking or what they think of when they think of an edible garden. Are they expecting the Garden of Eden to be outside in the back door 12 months a year, seven days a week? Mm-hmm. Um, or do they really understand what's involved in the different seasons, et cetera, et cetera? Um, crucially part of it. And do they have the infrastructure in place to handle that drainage and handle the irrigation and all of those little things? 
Well, then, yeah, then, then you come into the next big issue that is gardens, is that uh, the gardens, not always, but they often need pretty high standards in terms of uh, soil preparation, bed preparation, et cetera, et cetera. So mm-hmm. it has to be done right in the first place. Otherwise, you're just setting yourself up for problems that are going to keep very current down the line. So in Singapore, in, in our garden, for example, we have very poor soil. Now, within our, within our defense, getting any other soil in Singapore is largely impossible. It's a small, you, it's a small island, isn't it? Yeah. You, I mean, it's a big island, but it's a small state. Yeah. You, you get what you get, which is essentially plenty place. Right. Uh, and so we now are dealing with those issues of soil, soil drainage, but soil house, et cetera, which is going to be on the for another couple of years at least. So again, like any garden, we're going to move to move different, but doing it properly, understanding all the different facets of construction in it is crucial as well. Um, I've seen many gardens fail because Trying, trying to be as kind as I can. Um, you know, somebody saw on YouTube, somebody, <laughs> you know, green mulching a bit or something, and then sticking in plants afterwards, and and just ending up with an absolute nightmare. <laughs> nightmare yeah. On uh, LinkedIn the other day, I saw somebody watering their plants with orange juice (laughs) and everyone's like oh great i need to try this at home and it's like yeah oh well we should probably be careful about what information we're pushing out there and as much as that negative nelly comes in again like sometimes you do have to be like hey that's actually wrong and we're sending people away and then they're going to go away and think that they're a bad gardener and they're going to think this and the other no they've just had the wrong information I, I am a bit of a negative Nelly, to be totally honest, <laughs> um, largely because I've, I've seen, I have seen a lot of gardens fail, more things in the gardens fail. And so you know, my experience has fashion that. But at the same time, it annoys me when I see bad garden practice um, promoted or, or even worse, the, the whole story not really put forward. So a right. good example for this is uh, integrated pest management. Yes. <laughs> it's the magic silver bullet, isn't it? We'd never have to touch chemicals ever again. <laughs> Super <laughs> important. Um, you know, I'm a big proponent of it. Rarely have I ever seen it done actually properly. Um, largely unheard of. half. <laughs> but, um, but again... Some of the, the myths that are given. So a good one will be beneficial insects. So beneficial insects, the way it's sold to amateurs um, is that you know, beneficial in the in- insects, they balance each other out and you know, problem solved. Mm. Um, that's the impression that you get from a lot of DIY garden books and things. And, and look, that's fine. Like I can set the amateur level and people just start to do So that's, that's fine. But... In reality, particularly here in the tropics, what the reality is actually that you get a boom and bust. So what happens is that you have the, the pest insect, their population explodes for more of a reason, time of year, whatever, whatever else. The beneficial insect is either introduced or naturally occurring. Their population explodes to catch up with the pests. 
But that obviously doesn't happen straight away. That could take two, three, four weeks maybe. So your garden is white. <laughs> it adds a lot of damage in that period of time. And then what happens is that the two pest population, the two insect populations balance each other out as, as they're meant to. The pest population rapidly decreases. That means beneficial pest population. Uh, pest population. Sorry. Beneficial, beneficial population. I'd say that all the time. Beneficial pest population. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> beneficial insect population. That means their population then collapses because they no longer have prey. And then in a few weeks' time, you potentially have the exact same problem again, where the pest population explodes because now there's no longer enough of the beneficials. And you end up in this boom and bust cycle with runs, um, which is, isn't spoken about very often. It's absolutely a reality of some of these governments. Um, and so, you know, again, it largely comes back to education. Well, at the amateur level, of, you know, again, I'm not going to go into massive detail like that. You want to keep it simple and accessible for people to understand. But um, sometimes these things are oversold, in my opinion. Or, or perhaps not oversold is the word, but the, the whole picture is already given. Oversimplified, I think. Yeah, I, I exactly. totally agree. Yeah. And I see on LinkedIn and social media and stuff a lot of um look, I love the environment. Like you you yeah. will not find someone who loves the environment more than me. But yep. um at the end of the day, it seems simple minded to me to say, Oh, we can just ban um we can just ban this and we can ban that. And, yeah. Because at the end of the day, this the system is so complex that if you it, it take is, out one yeah. of these parts, it's it sort of collapses, and then who chooses who starves? Like, yeah, unfortunately, two dollar loaves of bread is a result of glyphosate. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree with you on that. Level. I mean, in terms of my own gardening, gardening and 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 the spring, my I did have to spray when I first took over the garden quite a bit to try to get that those boss populations under control. Um, mm. But I actually rarely spray these days. And mm. a part of that has just become, come from my own experience, um, my own education of understanding pest cycles. So a good one would be mealybugs. So in you know, every garden there's mealybugs, very, very common pests. Mm. What I discovered was in the wet season, which runs from October through to late January, Singapore, I had a gigantic explosion in the mealybug population. Uh, the sick bloody things were everywhere. And my initial reaction was, okay, well, I'll, I'll use neem oil. Everything's organic, of course, but I'll use neem oil. But after watching it for longer, I realized that it really was just connected to the weather at that time. So the wet season was stressing the plants and mealybugs were off in the field day. So mm. all I had to do was just wait and wait until the dry season came, which is in late January, and all of a sudden the mealybug population just took, took care of themselves, disappeared. So, mm. again, I think what's better is a better understanding of these pest populations, how they interact with the environment, what triggers them, um, different time of year, and not necessarily reaching, not trying to control the population so much, whether that's with stories or whether it's with beneficial insects, um, but instead becoming comfortable with a certain amount of damage in the garden, which is what I've been involved about. 
mm-hmm. that I think people's thresholds thresholds tend to be much lower than they probably should be. Right. You mean in terms of what they'll eat? No, in terms of gardeners in general, about how much damage they'll have in the garden before they start to panic. Right. You're right. They see one hole in the leaf and it's yeah. alarm bells are ringing. Yeah. And if you saw my garden in December, you would have said, oh, my God, we need to do something about the mealybugs. So we realistically just had to wait for the wolves and the problem was solved by itself. That's my favorite integrated pest management strategy, doing yeah. nothing. And then <laughs> in terms of... In terms of a wider picture, you know, I don't consider myself far by any stretch of the imagination. But from a wider perspective, I think what is more important than slaying in these type of things is actually consumers' understanding about edibles and the fact that, look, a salad, salad leaf with a few holes taken out of it by snow wall is not one too. It's, it's right. perfectly fine. Um, this, you know, I'll, the restaurant burns the garden is a very expensive, very, very nice restaurant and then we won't have to use it. If we can educate consumers at supermarket level to not demand or expect pristine, perfect spinach leaves, then we can potentially move you know, a bit away from some of that stuff. I think that will be a much better outcome and much more sustainable. And then we can reduce chemical usage. Well, then we can reduce chemical. Then we can reduce the chemical usage because a, a lot of it is coming from the demand of supermarkets that have this pristine product. So you take away the demand for the pristine product, and that changes the entire equation. Now, yeah, don't get me wrong. There's cases where you have to use these these phrases if you're doing large scale commercial farms, etc. I understand. But in terms of some of these products being used to make you know, the pristine finish leaf, it would be great if we can use those. And that's the conversation that I'd like to have. Where can we reduce unnecessary chemical usage? Um, yeah. You know, and, and let's build a roadmap to get there and let's not just get on social media and say, you know, sign my petition to ban all chemical usage. Yeah, which is what IPM is all about. I, you know, that, that's mm. the that's what it's all about. And IPM, it's, it's fantastic. We all need to use it. Unfortunately, in my experience, um, landscaping companies, particularly here in Singapore, talk about IPM but don't actually have IPM in place. Um, a lot of people, if you ask them what IPM is, they'll say, yeah, it's a good company, they're just going to more than that. Um, I, I, on a wider note, so on an in industry note, I think IPM is a fantastic opportunity for the industry. And we should grab this this with both hands as we are but what i mean by that is that you know the the days of having an untrained laborer or you know cheap labor you give him a can of pesticide with one hand and can of liquid fertilizer on the <laughs> other hand and let him loose <laughs> and a hedge trimmer yeah and a hedge trimmer you let it let him loose um those days uh slowly solving goat it's fantastic and ipm is part of that because mm-hmm. IBM fundamentally means that you need to have a gardener who actually moves the into it. He or she needs to understand the pests, the lifestyle of the pests. They need to understand good garden management, good garden hygiene, and, and everything else. So what it means is that if more people are adopting this IBM, which you know, they obviously are, but if they, if they truly are adopting it, not just saying it, it means that there's a big demand for 
trained, skilled pork cultivators. And that, that's a fantastic thing for our industry in terms of garden maintenance, etc. Um, to really to really give people the opportunity to have a really meaningful skill. Um, so, you know, you're not just kind of good, cutting loose with the edge trimmer, but you really understand your environment, you understand gardening. And there, you know, there's a lot of people like it. Of course, most people are fantastic. For me, the IPM is an opportunity to really expand the industry because if more companies take this on. So, for example, uh, in the US, uh, certainly not all about corporate, corporate companies who have their, their corporate headquarters that have often have parks and things like that attached to them. They've been demanding from their landscapers to have IBM in place and their sustainability offices have actually been demanding to sign off on the IBM every month of what pesticides they used, why it's being used, and what are what other methods can be used. And that's great. And you know, there's so many learning opportunities there. Which is fantastic. Which is absolutely yeah. fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And I would love to see, you know, the AIH and the RHS in England and all these other organizations. What I think they should be actually going out to the landlords and big landlords, commercial landlords, all these people and actually really trying to educate them why they should be demanding like the end from their supplies and their landscapes. But more importantly, making sure that the IPN is actually getting done. You know, signing off on the every month. And what that's in that mean is that the demand for trained, skilled horticulturists in terms of rice genetically, because all of a sudden you really need all of them, because there's the big market in So I think it's an exciting time in the industry. If you look at these greening things around the world, rewilding things around the world, um, urban schemes, a lot of them are very ambitious in their planting. And as a consequence of that, the maintenance can be very challenging. And so again, they're moving away more and more from the more and blow the blade, as we sometimes say. Yeah. Petrol cowboys as well, I've heard us called. I mean, I'm one of them too. That's my background. That's where I come from. Yeah, no, and then I, I was as well. I, I, you know, I don't mean that way. Well, what I do mean is that it gives the opportunity for the industry to to really mm. foster this new generation of trained, skilled horticulturists to carry this forward in the future. And you'll still have your hedge trimmer, but you'll also have a pair of secateurs. You'll have a you know you'll have a yeah, nice no, um, foldable saw, and you'll have you know you'll have a bunch of different <laughs> a bunch of different tools. It's not just that one tool. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, I hope I haven't offended too many people by saying this, but I, I think they get I think they get my points. So. I think so. And just to point people as well, if you think that integrated pest management is just about releasing insects in your garden, there's actually a lot more to it than that. No, it's much, much more than that. Check out episode 33, Intro to Integrated Pest Management with Dr. Peter Ridland. Yeah, it's one, if I can give one example, uh, suggestion for people's IPM programs, uh, one thing that I come across which is a big help is that you actually have Put in place a regular three-month or six-month meeting with your maintenance team where you all sit down yep. and review the IPM program and say, you know, look, I've got this new pest in the garden, I've tried this, I've done this, this works, and 
you know, the, the IPN program isn't something that's really one to go to something that's constantly updated. Yeah. And and look, it can be formal, but also if, if you're just doing your own backyard garden or if you're just working for clients, sometimes it can be informal. It can just be about writing notes yeah. and taking photos. Yeah, absolutely. So can you bring it back around for us and tell us, like, how do you incorporate everything that we've been talking about in terms of thinking in complexity and, um, you know, looking at all of your options and really doing the research and doing the real hard yards in horticulture? Like, how do you bring that all back into the kitchen garden? Oh, um, okay. So I guess the main takeaways from this is that you need to edible gardens to be a success. Um, and this is especially true if you're dealing with clients who haven't dealt with them before. And education of the clients is absolutely crucial and, and understanding what the client is expecting is absolutely crucial. Uh, edible gardens aren't something that you just, you know, I've, I've designed and built a lot of ornamental gardens and therefore I'm going to do an edible garden. If you do get at scale, I mean, and they are a candidate practitioner. So you need to educate yourself or even better reach out and get the advice about what you should be looking at. Um, if you're going to be doing any type of a commercial Aspects such as the garden I'm involved in, so we have the restaurants and we have that commercial relationship with the restaurant, then the ongoing relationship with the client is, is absolutely crucial. And being very upfront mm. and constant, constant dialogue with what's happening in the garden and what to expect. Um, I think they're, they're probably the main takeaways. Don't get trapped by their expectations. You've got to stand tall and puff your chest out and be like, this is what's possible, this is what's not possible. You need to listen yeah, to me because I, mean, I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly right. And and be willing to walk away from things. Mm, oh, how so, much more powerful are you when you're willing to walk away and just drop it? Yeah. I, I know too many people who client wants this done um, and they're for now to do it. And when it comes to this, they can go fantastically well. So you need to be willing to work A good example was not very long ago we had a person contact who wanted their entire they wanted the entire landscaping of their house in Singapore completely torn out and replaced with animals. Which right. sounds sounds like a cool idea. Um sounds possible, but we also knew that the maintenance, the access to local places would have been an, an absolute nightmare. Right. And the garden would have shaved. What's the opposite of the Garden of Eden? What happened after they got kicked out? What, is that just the <laughs> world? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, um, yeah, and then and also, I guess it goes back to the education, but be wary, I guess, is the right way to. Be wary of catchwords, mm. and uh, and find out if the person using these catchwords actually know what they're talking about. Uh, mm. So, in within my industry, it will gardens, things like you know um, permaculture, food forests, space activation, community engagements. Um, these are all fantastic words, and the concepts behind them are. I'm bad at all, so they can be fantastic concepts when they come properly. But in my experience, they're often cash words that are used 
without people will understand what they mean. Yeah. Or they are catchwords that people use to over-inflate expectations. Or to obfuscate the truth as well. Like just saying, like throwing around the word sustainability, we're a sustainable company, this, that, and the other. It's so easy to say these words and maybe you do understand it, maybe you don't. Yeah, I mean, it just means it means nothing. It really means nothing. <laughs> there's some, there's already been some good articles in in the US. So my my background is I worked in investment banking for many years, um, so I have quite a cynical background. Yeah, <laughs> I've been on that. I've been on that side, and you see plenty of articles written about um, so-called sustainable companies. And look, there are some out there. They're fantastic, and and, and you know, that's really international champion. But it's it's also for the best. I do also want to just like um, let everybody know, like it's okay to not be perfect as well. Like some, like yeah, we all want to be as sustainable as we possibly can. And I think a lot of people tie themselves inside out, trying to be absolutely perfect, um, trying to eat the perfect environmental diet, trying yeah. to not have it, you know, have a less of a carbon imprint. At the end of the day. It's not really possible, and it's when you know it's going to take a much bigger shift. Like it's going to take a, an adaptation, an ad- adaptation away from petrol and away from fossil yeah, fuels. Exactly. Like this is what's needed. It's not you riding your bike to work every day. Like yeah. it's great, and you'll feel great for doing it, but don't stress yourself out too much for it because you're only one person. Yeah, and, and like I said before, I think one thing for me that I think will, people can can demand, and there are some places where it's. it's People have been trying to do it. Uh, France being an example, which is where people are, are really pushing back on the the idea that food as a product has to be perfect. Mm. That's something that would be fantastic. But um, but yeah, no. My, my biggest advice in, in for designers or people looking at this space, or perhaps they've been asked by clients to do this space, is just be careful of the catchwords. Mm, um, I've actually, that. I've actually learned to take those cash words almost as a bill when I when I hear them, <laughs> it, it makes me think. Like, what are some others? Niche. Um, I mean, the best one is uh, the one that the one that I love is food forest. Now, food forest is a concept I have no issue at all. There are some great examples in the world. It's it's fantastic. I know one. There's one in the Yarra Valley. Yarra Valley Estate have an awesome, genuine food for us. And I have interviewed uh, their head gardener, Jamie. So Fantastic. Uh, key word there is head gardener. Um, right. And what, what I mean by this is that so many of these gardens have been sold to clients as food forests with the ex- implicit understanding that these are going to be semi wild, wild spaces of edible food. And because they're wild, because, you know, obviously the forest is the forest is wild, mm. therefore it makes sense. It's, it's an absolute win. Yeah. That basically we can choose different varieties of plants to put together. Each of those varieties are going to co habitat fantastically and they'll be. No maintenance, and you can just wander out and pick what you want from the garden to do whenever you want. Mm. The reality is very, very, very. I think they're thinking of like Zelda or something. 
Yeah. Well, the reality, and, and unfortunately, this is something I've seen happen so, so, so many times. And unfortunately, the reality is, is that possible? Uh, yes. If you are an incredibly experienced horticulturalist slash designer who knows your plants extremely well, you've done you know, a lot of these gardens, and you're in the right part of the world, you can you know, make this work. But the reality for most of the gardens is that it helps. The client isn't bringing the maintenance because they don't expect they have to, or they don't know how to, more than not. And then very quickly, the entire thing just become, becomes heavily overgrown. The plants start to compete against each other. So the plants are born to compete by the plants. And you end up And then the client doesn't engage with the garden anymore because it's, it becomes so wild that quite probably cooking old school, so it's overgrown. Mm-hmm. Um, the client doesn't want to engage with the garden anymore. Visually, it's quite foreboding, and at that point, the garden really has So, if you have a gardener though who can regulate that space, who can make that garden balanced out, and can keep it wild within a, within the confines that you need to be, then it can be a fantastic example. But unfortunately, a lot of these gardens are sold to clients and skewed forests. And again, it's still me going back to that client expectations. Um, their expectations of good forest is just boring Well said. So I've got a couple more questions for you. Firstly, I'd like to ask about the AIH involvement in Singapore. So I'm a council member. I volunteer for the AIH. And I see all this stuff going on in Singapore. And I have for a couple of years now, even when I was just a member the likes of Michael Casey, Alan Burnell, and many others, and the Australasian Green Infrastructure Network as well. But specifically, can you tell me about the impact of the AIH being there? Like, I guess we bring a lot of pomp and circumstance and a lot of ceremony, but I I actually think that's a really good thing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I obviously don't know the exact details. I am a member of the AIH, but um, I don't know the exact history of this. But from my understanding, the IIH has been involved in Singapore for quite a while. So NPARCS is the government body that looks after the, the national parks within Singapore. They have a training program called the Certified Practicing Horticulturist, CPH, where if you're horticulturist in Singapore, you pass the test and get that accreditation. Um, the A, from my understanding, the AIH actually helped set up that course um, quite a number of years ago. So they were instrumental in setting it, setting it up in parks. Um, now, uh, other than in parks, there's also the Landscape Industry Association of Singapore, which is the national trade body for the industry. And the AIH has a close relationship, uh, with that body as well. So again, um, Singapore, it's a very interesting place, industry wise. Uh, it has world famous gardens, courts, has a very high standard. Uh, but they rely very heavily on foreign labor. So by foreign labor, only uh, the Indians and Bangladeshis that make up the bulk of landscaping workforce. 
And then typically you have a Singaporean who oversees that world as a supervisor. Now the RIS and NPARCs, these bodies, have been trying to encourage young Singaporeans to take up home culture as a career and to be actually hands-on involved in home culture. And so the ARH is playing important parts in that. I think it's a good example to, to show that, you know, in places in the world, it's not just foreign labor who's doing this work. So I think supporting them in that regard. And also using the, I believe the ARH uh, leaning on the H to find out how we make that happen in terms of encouraging the next generation guidance the next generation I think it starts with getting the word out there and that's what we're doing today. Yeah, it is. Uh, one big issue in Singapore to, to try to bring this kind of full circle, um, you know, one big issue in Singapore is the wages or culture, mm. culture, which is an issue. Oh, that's just in Singapore. I, I yeah, thought that was here too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that's that's an issue everywhere, of course. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's a funny story. I particularly liked the royal family in England uh, they actually had a news piece calling from the horn culture industry to pay more money, and then it turned out they were paying their own gardeners minimum wage. <laughs> 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 oh no! Hypocr- hypocrisy will get you. Oh, there's <laughs> nothing worse, is there? Like, yeah. But so, mate, bring this full circle uh, for me. Things like IPM are crucial. In, in making this happen mm. because not only does IPM, what I mean by IPM, you know, I mean genuine uptake of IPM, which is where, like I said, you no longer have a guy with a can of pesticide in one hand and a can of fertilizer in the other. You now have a fully trained, experienced gardener. And what that means is that not only is there a credit demand for not good gardeners, but it also means that. Surely that will feed through into actual salaries, guys. And so I think it's an exciting time to be in horticulture um, with all these changes, rapid changes happening, um, less, much less reliance on spoiling and pesticides and, and going back to really a proper holistic understanding of gardening at a much wider level, where much more people understand this stuff and through. And also the market too. I mean, we've got a job yeah. short. Uh, we've got a staff shortage crisis. So yeah, that's going to yeah. drive up the wages too. So that'll be fun to see. Yeah, I think it's. it's I think it's a bright future to be totally honest. Mm. No, I do too. No, I and look, I, I would urge anyone, especially someone who's looking at getting into the industry for the first time, like listening to this, going, "Oh, these guys are bagging on the on the salary." Look, it, it is going to get better, and it's a beautiful industry to be in, so don't worry about the money if you love it. If you don't love it, go on, go into construction, go and do something that pays better, but if you love it, you should be here, and we need you here. Yeah, absolutely. And one example I give to, you know, I do some training programs at EGC for junior students and younger people, and one example I give is, you know, I'll show a picture of me, an English country house in the turn of the century, you know, 1910 or something. And often in these houses, you'd see the gardening staff. You know, you have turn of the gardening staff. 
mm-hmm. and you know you might see 10, 10 people on this in the backyard with and a head gardener was is a you know quite a prestigious job. What a job! It quite it still is. That is still a States. very prestigious job. Head yeah, gardener is very prestigious. Mm. It absolutely is. Um, but there is obviously more of them than mm. because there are more of these peasants and things like that. And then you look at the same photos from Latin fifties, or if you look at the same photos from now, instead of ten gardens, yeah, two two gardens. Now, obviously, a massive part of that industrialization and using yeah, using mechanical tools to, mm-hmm. to make life easier, absolutely. But another big part of that is the pesticide and fertilizer revolution that came along. And all of a sudden, you know, you didn't need as many gardens to do the same amount of work because one gardener with a can of herbicide or the herbicide something could do the work that five guys who in the oh. mm-hmm. um, and so, but the exciting thing is we're now going back full circle. While we still have the mechanical stuff, which is great, but we're no longer using sprays, which means that, uh, again, as I said, we're going back to a time where people are going to, going to need horticulturists, um, not, not just laborers, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense, and I, so, I applaud that. That's This is why I'm a part of the AIH as well. I'd like to raise the standard, so I'm glad that you're on the same mission as me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I'm really keen. I think it's a great career. Um, it has a bright future. Where the world is heading, it has a very bright future. Very true, especially if you're in Singapore. Yeah, <laughs> on, yeah. M- multiple layers <laughs> there, but yeah, very yeah. bright city and and lots of horticulture going on there. Lots of green infrastructure too. Very, very, very interesting place. Um, you need to spend some time here to get under the skin, but a lot of it isn't what it appears in the surface. Um, let me put it that way. Right. As I said, uh, the reliance on foreign neighbors look very, very heavy. The number of Singaporeans doing actually hands-on work is, is relatively limited, and uh, I hugely applaud those that do. So in Wagan City, we only use Singaporeans and the old expat, um, and I hugely applaud those people for doing it, those young people. Yeah. But what Singapore has achieved is, is very impressive. Mm. Uh, but it, as I said, it's like anything in life, it's more complicated than it first appears. So... There's one final question I always like to ask my guests at the end of every episode. It doesn't have to be on topic. It can be about whatever you'd like. You can even be about what you did on the weekend if you really want to if you really want to go there. But <laughs> you, can, um, you can advocate for a change in the world. You can uh, recommend a charity or you can tell us what we're doing wrong. Or, yeah, just what would you like us to know about, Brent? Um, oh, no, let's do more about that. Oh, a very good question. I guess we've touched on a lot um, about let's do all gross RPM, but let's do it properly and 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 really use it. So I think it's uh, I really do think it's an amazing opportunity in the industry, and it's what we should be doing anyway. It's a really great example. Um, I'm currently in Singapore at the moment, obviously, but my time here is coming to an end soon. I'll be moving back to Australia at the back end of this year. So I'll be handing over the garden, garden to somebody else. Uh, I'll be based around the fellow house region. So if anybody wants to get in touch, 
Um, and we'll get your resume up on the on the Hort people job board as well. So if anyone would like to hire you, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, we'll, we'll get your contacts in the show notes of this episode too, because you'd be a great catch for any employer, particularly in the similar sort of role of what you're doing now. Or would you be looking for something different? I I have no idea. I'll be honest. I mean, I am a bit of a journeyman uh, in many regards. So uh, my wife was posted to Singapore for the company, so that's why I'm in Singapore. And then you know, I made Singapore work and ended up at Garden. Uh, certainly expected to do the same thing. I may look at setting up my own garden, maybe to do design work, but I have no idea. It's exciting. I'm looking forward to being part of the industry. Very exciting, mate. Thanks so much for a great chat. I really appreciate your time. No, no problem. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's very kind. Growing Food at Height presents a few challenges on top of what you'd experience in a conventional veggie garden. With the right approach, you can grow healthy, nutrient-rich foods with minimal chemical pesticides, as long as you're willing to work with the occasional insect chew mark. Brent would be an asset to any Aussie restaurant with a garden, or in fact, in just about any horticultural context. Check the show notes if you'd like to hire him. And if you'd like to upload your resume to hortpeople.com as well, you should also check the show notes.